Hello and welcome to Nurturing Resilience. I'm Leisha Nelson. This is a podcast for cultivating connection, belonging, and safety through stories of triumph and post-traumatic growth, sprinkled with a little bit of magic. I am so glad you have joined me. Let's dive into today's podcast. Hello and welcome to week three of Nervous System November on Nurturing Resilience. I'm really excited to have you here as we dive into sleep. Now, some of you might be wondering, what does sleep have to do with the nervous system? And what you're going to find out is that it has a lot to do with the nervous system. So today we're going to dive into the relationship between sleep and the nervous system. We're going to talk about the different stages of sleep and what happens in those different stages of sleep. And of course, we're going to talk about how we can improve our sleep. And most of what I'm sharing comes from research-based information. I'll also provide any links that I talk about down below in the show notes any books that I highly recommend that cover sleep. Before we dive into any of that, just a reminder that if you are enjoying this podcast and you like it, please consider writing a review and sharing it with your family and friends. I greatly appreciate any of my podcasts that are shared. And I also like to remind people that I offer one-on-one work and group containers. So if you're interested in diving into some deeper work, maybe somatic processing, especially around womb healing, birth practices, adult birth journeys, please let me know. Reach out to me. I'm here. I also every so often like to remind people I am not a physician. I am not a doctor. This podcast and any of my information is not a replacement for any medical advice. This is purely educational purposes about the nervous system, somatics, and nourishing your own resiliency. All right, so let's dive into sleep, starting off with a simple explanation of how it's related to the nervous system. As a very simple review, the nervous system is anything in your brain, your spinal cord, your nerves, and sleep is really interesting. It's one of those times of our life when we spend a lot of time of our life in this phase where our external environment isn't registering to our brain. When we're in sleep, it's all about our internal environment. And it really is that time where our brain is actually being nourished during sleep. And when we have appropriate sleep and we're able to go through the appropriate sleep-wake cycles, it really creates a balance of our neurotransmitters, our hormones, and therefore our systems function better. We know that lack of sleep affects our memory and our ability to think clearly, and sleep deprivation can lead to neurological dysfunctions such as mood swings and hallucinations. I mean, think about those times when either you go to bed too late, you don't get enough sleep, you have to wake up way earlier than you're used to, or you don't have a restful night's sleep, 
and how much that impacts your next day. Now quantify that and that can definitely lead to a disturbance in the nervous system. Those who do not get enough sleep are at higher risk of developing obesity, diabetes, and even cardiovascular disease. Sleep difficulties are associated with adverse effects on well-being, functioning, quality of life. Lack of or altered sleep can disrupt your family life, your well-being, your ability to care for children, or your ability to care for even yourself. It's estimated that 50 to 70 million Americans chronically suffer from disordered sleep. And so that's why it's really important for me to dive into sleep as part of Nervous System November. So let's quickly dive into the stages of sleep. I don't want to spend too much time here discussing the stages, but I think it will give you a better understanding of why sleep is so important. So they break sleep down into five stages. Wakefulness, N1, N2, N3, and REM sleep. When they're talking about N1 through N3, this is non-rapid eye movement sleep where our eyes are not moving and each stage gets progressively deeper. REM sleep is what most of us know as dreaming sleep. And if you've ever watched anyone dreaming or your dog, you can see how there's rapid eye movement. So a complete cycle where we move from N1 all the way through REM sleep takes 90 to 100 and 10 minutes. So think about that for those of you that are maybe breastfeeding moms with newborns and you're having to get up a lot, or those of you that are not sleeping throughout the night for whatever reason, if you're not getting that complete cycle, that 90 to 110 minutes, it's going to be really hard to get the nourishment from sleep that you need. This cycle is really important for a couple different reasons. We'll start with N1, and this is the lightest stage of sleep. We really only spend 5% of our time here. And in this stage, we still have muscular tone present, and our breathing is pretty much the same as when we're awake. Now, where things start to get interesting is where we go into N2 sleep, and we spend about 45% of our time here. Our heart rate drops here, and our temperature drops here. But what's significant about this stage is there something called sleep spindles that are present at this stage. And numerous studies suggest that sleep spindles play a really important role in memory consolidation. So this is the stage where all the information that we're learning through the day, how we're moving through the world, then gets moved and interpreted into the different parts of our brain for memory. What's also really interesting about this stage is this is the stage where most people grind their teeth because it's like that really, really deep sleep. Next is N3. Um, we spend about 25% of our time here, and this is the deepest stage of sleep. If you think back to a time when you were woken up suddenly by an alarm or startled by something, but you have a really hard time waking up and you're really groggy and it takes a while to come out of it, it's because you were woken up in a stage three sleep. And when you are waken up in this stage, it's really hard to get going. It's really hard to get moving and wake up. We have a lack of inertia here. 
Now, what's really important about this stage and why this stage is vital is this is the stage when the body repairs itself. This is when we regrow tissue. This is when bones build. This is when the immune system is strengthened. And this is when muscles are strengthened. So if you have an injury, I don't know about you, but for me, when I have an injury, I want more sleep. And this is usually why. Sleep is one way the body knows how to repair itself and how to self-heal. And that happens through reaching this stage three of sleep. Also our immune systems. So you can start to see if you're not getting enough sleep or consistent sleep, there's no possible way for your body to repair itself and for your body to heal, for your body to have a strong immune system. I know for me also when I'm not getting enough sleep, if I'm really stressed, life is keeping me up at night, my immune system tanks. This is why. And so this is another reason how the nervous system is so highly impacted by our sleep and why it's so important. So just really quickly, that last stage is that REM sleep. We also spend about 25% of our time here. The brain waves during REM sleep register the same or really similar as to when we're awake, which is really interesting. The diaphragm and the breathing muscles become more active here. So this kind of is an awake state. Our heart rate becomes a little bit more irregular as well. This stage usually starts about 90 minutes after you fall asleep. And some of you may or may not remember your dreams. Even if you don't remember your dreams, it doesn't mean you're not in REM sleep. So those are the stages of sleep. And again, for you breastfeeding moms or for the moms that have new new infants or children that are keeping you up throughout the night or shift workers, more than likely you're not getting these cycles of sleep. And that's why it can feel so difficult after having a newborn because your sleep really is disrupted. And that might be why you might feel like your memory is not working as well. Or maybe your immune system isn't working as well because it's not. You're just really not getting the sleep that you need. So something to keep in mind is sleep and wakefulness are actually related. So what we do in the daytime in our waking state actually determines our sleep patterns just as much as how we fall asleep and how well we sleep. So that's the thing I see the most with people is they're like really focused on their evening routine, which is important. They're really focused on, you know, getting things all dialed in at night so that they can have this really restful, great sleep. But really what needs to be addressed is what's happening in the daytime. A lot of what's happening in the daytime is going to be person-to-person dependent. So just like most nervous system practices, no one nervous system is the same, meaning you really do have to experiment, figure out what works for you, figure out what doesn't work for you, and then be consistent about applying or not applying those practices. So what I wanna offer today is some information for you to take that information and play around with it. And some of you might already know, like we're going to talk about caffeine. 
Caffeine might affect a lot of you. Caffeine might not affect you. And so those are the things that you have to play around with in yourself. So there is a molecule in our nervous system called adenosine. And adenosine builds up in our nervous system the longer we are awake. So when you first wake up from a restful night of sleep, adenosine is very low. And as the day goes on and the day progresses, adenosine starts to build up in our system. And that's what creates a a desire for sleep, is that by the end of the day, we have higher rates of adenosine, and also we're going to talk about melatonin. But those two things, you go, your body's like, okay, it's time, I'm tired, I'm craving sleep. And so that's why how long you've been awake can really affect how tired you are and how you feel. So say you have a day where you get up at 5 a.m. and you're not able to go to bed until midnight, you're going to have a lot of adenosine in your system, especially if normally you get up at 7 and go to bed, say like 9 or 10. So just keeping that in mind, that adenosine is what makes those days seem so much longer when you're not able to have that consistent routine sleep. So caffeine acts on adenosine. What caffeine does when you drink it is it comes in and binds to this receptor that the adenosine wants to to bind to. So caffeine blocks the adenosine from binding, which means we can't get sleepy. We don't get the sleepy signal because the adenosine isn't there. But that's also why there's often a crash after caffeine because all of a sudden the caffeine gets moved the adenosine can come in and it comes in pretty rapidly and suddenly binds to all the molecules and so then there's this crash so some people can drink a lot of caffeine and some people can drink hardly any it really depends on your adenosine receptors so you have to figure that out for you I don't think caffeine is this horrible thing. I mean, it gets played out to be this horrible thing, but the thing about caffeine is that it increases your dopamine, which is your feel-good molecule, and that's not a bad thing. Caffeine (laughs) makes us feel good. So you have to decide what works for you. There's a lot of a variation here with how much your body does or does not release dopamine and what your adenosine molecules are doing in your body. So for me, I know that I can't have caffeine after about 2 p.m. If I have caffeine after 2 p.m., I'm up all freaking night. Like caffeine after 2 p.m. affects me more than if I have a cup of coffee in the morning. But I just had to figure that out on my own and be in my own experiment with it. So beyond talking about adenosine and how caffeine affects adenosine, we also really need to talk about the circadian rhythm. This is huge for our system. Everyone's circadian rhythm is about 24 hours, and this is our internal clock that determines when we want to be awake and when we want to be asleep. The thing about the circadian rhythm is that it's 100% light determined. 
you know, in our day and age, unfortunately, we're really removed from nature. We're really removed from the natural cycles of the environment. We spend a lot of time indoors. We're really disengaged from what's going on in our outside world. I believe that's had a huge effect on our sleep patterns. I believe that if we were outside all the time, like we used to be like with our ancestors, sleep wouldn't be a problem because we would be naturally attuning our circadian rhythm to the sun and the moon and to the seasons. And I actually think that's a natural way to be. So in that retrospect, if I'm sleepier in the winter, because I live in Utah and we go through darker winters, I'm okay with the fact that I need to sleep more in the winter. For me, I'm like, that's just me following the rhythms of nature. And I give myself that permission. And I find that I need less sleep in the summer. Now, this is also true for phases of your cycle. If you are a woman and you have a regular cycle, this is us syncing up with nature. There are times in our cycle when we just need more sleep. Our metabolism is different. Our body mechanisms are different. So again, for me, when I'm in my luteal phase and when I'm in my active bleeding phase, I need more sleep. And hopefully I can give that to myself And then I recognize in my other phases of my cycle, I don't need as much sleep. So one thing to really experiment with, with this, is tracking your cycle, starting to notice, do I sleep worse? Do I sleep better? At what parts of my cycle? Tracking the different times of year. If there are certain times of the year that you need more sleep, you might need to do sleep practices in the summer. If you live in the Northern Hemisphere, because it's so light outside and maybe that's an okay thing. So it's really determining how do I feel, what works, what doesn't work. Most people naturally wake up when the sun rises. And what happens when we wake up is our body releases a hormone called cortisol. Now, some of you might think, wait, cortisol is a stress hormone. That must be a bad thing. Yes, cortisol is a stress hormone, but it doesn't always mean that it's a bad thing. Cortisol is a stress hormone in the sense of that is what gets you up and moving and going. And we need that in the morning. So it's really natural and it's really healthy. And what we want is a spike of cortisol first thing in the morning. And hopefully that spike in cortisol is your largest spike in the day. What happens a lot of times is people aren't having that cortisol spike in the morning. So that's why they reach for the cup of coffee. That's why it's really hard to get going in the morning. The hormones in the nervous system are out of balance. So that cortisol spike isn't happening. Stress is another thing that greatly affects this. Say you aren't getting your cortisol spike first thing in the morning. And then you have a really, really stressful day. You're in your fight or flight system a lot. You have a lot of anxiety. You have a lot of stress where you are getting cortisol spikes in the system. Say you're getting very big ones, very large ones that are larger than the morning one. That's going to make it hard to fall asleep at night. That's going to disrupt your hormonal cycle. That's going to disrupt your nervous system. 
So just to reiterate, normal to have a cortisol spike first thing in the morning. Upon waking, this is a healthy thing. If you're having a hard time sleeping, this is where you want to start to focus what you do in the day and how this can affect you at night. The other thing that's really interesting is this rise in cortisol signals a timer and your body sets this timer and it then knows 12 to 14 hours later, you're going to secrete what's called melatonin. And I'm sure most of you have heard of melatonin, but when we have that cortisol spike, we know, or our body knows 12 to 14 hours later, ah, time to secrete melatonin. And then we start to feel sleepy. If we don't have that spike in cortisol, we're not going to have that timer be triggered to then have the melatonin be secreted 12 to 14 hours later. So what's happening first thing in the morning and how you're moving through the day first thing in the morning is going to dictate what's happening at night. So this is really huge. What helps create this cortisol spike? One, it happens naturally, hopefully, and you can train your body to have it happen naturally. But what regulates it the most? Light, specifically sunlight. Again, if we were outside living in nature consistently, I don't think any of us would be having sleep issues and sleep disturbances. Because if we lived outside, we would naturally be moving with the rhythms of the sun and the moon. We'd be waking up with the sun. We'd be getting that outside light as we're waking up. And we'd be getting that spike in cortisol. So how do we do this? Basically, what you want to do is you want to make sure that upon waking, you get outside. And it's something about the angle of the sun and the light, this low light emits a certain blue and yellow tone to our eyes. Our retina, which are the molecules in our eyes, register this blue and yellow light and it signals, ah, release cortisol, wake up, get moving. So upon waking, getting up and just getting outside. Now I know for me in the wintertime, this is not fun. (laughs) This is really difficult. In the summer, all we really need is about two to 10 minutes in, in the Northern hemisphere, I should say. So in your summer cycle, wherever that is for you, whatever time of year that is for you, all you really need is two to five, two to 10 minutes. It does not work to look through a window. You actually need to be outside having your retinas, having your eyeballs surrounded in this light. Now, if you're someone like me who lives in Utah and we have cloudy days and unfortunately here we have inversions, the research says you need about 30 minutes. And that sucks because that means I'm outside in the winter when it's cold. It's harder to be outside for 30 minutes. But what I personally try to do is just kind of gauge it. Like even though it's colder here now, today's a really beautiful sunny day. So I didn't need to be outside for 30 minutes. There are some days 
where I do try to spend more time outside if it's cloudy. So just take into account where do I live, what time of year, how much light is actually there, and you're going to play with that anywhere from 2 to 30 minutes. And again, only you can figure out how much sunlight and how much time do your retinas need to be in this light, taking in this blue light. For some people, two minutes might be enough. That might be fine. And that's making them wake up and feel better and move through the day better. Other people might need 30 minutes and only you can determine that. One thing to pay attention to is how do you feel for the rest of the day and what's happening at night? Are you getting sleepy about 12 to 14 hours later? Because if you're getting that cortisol spike and it's working and it's your highest spike of the day, remember 12 to 14 hours later, you should start to get a little bit sleepy and have this desire to fall asleep. So a lot of people ask me about the sad lamps. I personally don't use one. I know a lot of people that love them. A lot of people that aren't able to have direct sunlight first thing in the morning have reported that this makes a huge difference. So this is something else for you to play with is if sunlight is not an option, getting outside, there is no lightness, try a sad lamp. And again, see the same things. See how you feel. See what's happening at the end of the day. A problem I see, and I'm totally guilty as charged of this, is most people wake up and look at their phone. Most people wake up and turn on their computer. So that becomes the first light that they're engaging in. And granted, this is blue light, um, but it's not the same as getting outside. It's not the same as going out, surrounding yourself in that sunlight or that light. So just keep that in mind. Like one of the things that might dictate how restful your sleep is, is whether you get on your phone first thing in the morning. That's something to pay attention to. The other thing I see people do uh, is sunglasses. And again, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not telling you to never wear sunglasses. There are certain conditions where your eyes might be really sensitive to light. There are certain times of the day for me where I get a headache if I don't have sunglasses on, but I've really tried to minimize my sunglass exposure, especially in the morning, because I really want my eyes to be taking in as much of that blue and yellow light as possible. So that's the other thing to play with. How much are you wearing your sunglasses? Does it make a difference in how you feel throughout the day, how alert and awake you feel, and then what's happening at the end of the day? What we want to train our nervous system to do and our brains to do is to be awake and alert throughout the day. And then naturally our body goes, okay, great. I've used all my energy I've expended and now I'm sleepy and it's time for me to rest and nourish myself and fall asleep. So I hear so many of my clients say that they're night owls and chances are you're not. There's actually very few percent of the population that are night owls. 
what's happening to you so-called night owls is you just aren't getting the appropriate quality and quantity of sunlight upon waking. And it really is about retraining your brain, retraining your cortisol spike so that you become sleepier at the end of the day. And I'm sure some of you are going to reach out and comment and be like, whatever, I'm a night owl. Yeah, there are a small percent of the population that truly are night owls, but it's much smaller than most of us think. Something to also point out is a cortisol spike that's happening in the evening. So if the big spike isn't happening in the morning, and for whatever reason your brain is trained to do that in the evening, the evening cortisol spike is often related to anxiety or depression. Not always, but if you have an anxiety or depression diagnosis, chances are your cortisol spikes aren't happening in the morning. Movement. So let's talk about movement and exercise. If you're feeling sleepy, it's the middle of the day, get outside, get some sunlight, and also start to do movement. Exercise is 100% one of those things that you also have to figure out yourself similar to caffeine. There is some really interesting research about your body and when the best times are to exercise. Some people say 30 minutes upon waking. Some people say three hours. Some even say 11. (laughs) Now, if I were to exercise in the evening, similar to caffeine, I'm awake. Exercise really wakes me up. So this is another thing that you also have to play with in yourself is when does exercise in my wakeful hours at what time of the day is that helpful for me for helping the evening routine? Something to point out is your body actually gets used to exercise. So if you haven't exercised, you're not an exerciser, and let's just call it movement because it can be any type of movement, your body actually creates neuroplasticity around the time that you have movement, the time of day. So if you're keeping your exercise time at a consistent time throughout the day, if that's possible, your body will get used to it and it will anticipate it. Anytime you keep it scheduled, your body starts to release release hormones in anticipation for the thing you're about to do and that that's why it gets easier over time. So that's how exercise works too. And we know that when we exercise, we're also just so many benefits of exercise. I'm not going to get into them here, but we know that when we're exercising consistently and if you can exercise and find the time that works for you, throughout the day, you're going to sleep better at night. So let's talk about what does happen for those of you that aren't sleeping through the night and you wake up and get on your phone. So there's a couple school of thoughts here. One school of thought is that if you're lying in bed longer than 20 minutes and your mind is racing and you're super active, I mean, essentially in that state, you're in your fight or flight state. And one school of thought says that is not helpful. What do you need to do if you're in your fight or flight state? You need to move. And so one school of thought says, get out of bed, 
Get out of bed, stretch, move your body, maybe shake, maybe journal, get some movement going, and then try to lay back down and go to bed. Now, I think that that is great. I think that can sometimes be a great idea. One thing I try when I find myself awake middle of the night, 2, 3 a.m., my mind is running, I try practice yoga nidra or I do some diaphragmatic breathing. So I try to get my mind away from all those racing thoughts and I try to drop more into my body. And some people might say like diaphragmatic breathing, you know, some gentle body scans, maybe some yoga nidra, that's considered movement. For me personally, that's enough movement to get out of my fight or flight system. I usually find myself falling back to sleep. One issue with getting up is we actually really want to avoid light from about 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. If we see light, we suppress dopamine, we feel more, we feel less happy and more disappointed with life during our research hours. And that is 100% research-based. We totally mess up our neurotransmitters and we're messing up that cortisol spike if between 11 and 4 a.m. you're getting out of bed in the sense of that you're getting on your phone, you're getting on your computer, you're turning lights on, you're really messing with the retina and the whole light situation that we just talked about previously. If you do get up, say your mind is racing, it's been 20 minutes and you're like, I just got to get up. Keep the lights low. If you can stay in the dark or light candles, don't get on your phone. Do not get on your phone, please. Like if you can sleep with your phone in the other room, like really set that up for yourself. Like you don't need your phone next to your bed. If you use it as an alarm, go buy yourself a cheap alarm clock. Get away from your phone. Keep the lights low. Try some movement and then find your way, hopefully, back to bed. Something else to consider about sleep is your magnesium intake and what's happening on a nutritional level, what's happening on the cellular level, especially with that magnesium. I wrote a blog all about this. I'll include this in the show notes. If you take Calm uh, that's made from magnesium citrate, I believe, that's not going to do you any good. Like you might be noticing some effects, but really there are much better options for magnesium out there. Magnesium is what our body needs to heal and to do a lot of different cellular processes. So one thing to consider is if you're waking up a lot throughout the night, it's starting to look at your magnesium intake and starting to play around with different levels of magnesium and different kinds. And I go into the different kinds on my blog post, but this is something that can be life-changing for people and sleep. Now, the other thing to think about are blue light blocker glasses. So the light that's coming from our computers, that's blue light. So there's a couple school of thoughts on this too. And again, you have to do what works for you. 
I know for me, if I'm going to be on my computer after about 5, 6 p.m., I'm going to wear my blue light blockers. It just really helps me. If I don't and I'm on my computer, I noticed I have a hard time falling asleep at night. So keeping in mind, figuring out what works for you. Some people need to wear blue light blockers throughout the day. Some people don't need to wear them at all. Some people like me wear them in the evenings and the afternoons and at night. Let's talk about the other things that can influence sleep. Timing of food intake. So again, some people can eat a meal and then go right to bed. Some people need to have a big span of when it works for them. So figuring out intake of food, and again, the more consistent you can be, your body creates molecules in anticipation for whatever that activity is. It creates neuroplasticity around it, and then our body knows. So that's easier on our nervous system from a molecule standpoint when we have routines. The other thing to take into account is drugs. What are you doing with drugs? And I'm talking pharmaceuticals, plant medicines. How do those affect you? Certain drugs can make you sleepier. Certain drugs can make you stay awake at night. So some habits that can really help you is be consistent. I think I've talked about that a lot. But going to bed at the same time each night and waking up at the same time each morning, including weekends. If we disrupt our sleep, meaning we change that schedule, it takes us a couple days to get back into that routine. We get back into that routine and then the weekend's here again and we mess it up. So if you're really struggling with sleep, consider waking up at the same time. Make your bedroom a sanctuary. Make it feel safe and comfortable and cozy and relaxing and quiet Have it be a comfortable temperature, have a comfortable bed and a comfortable pillow. Does your room feel safe? Does it feel like a sanctuary? Or do you have a TV in there that you're watching up until the moment you go to bed? Those are some things to think about. Remove those electronic devices, TVs, computers, smartphones, smartwatches, just get them out of there. Alcohol. Alcohol can have have a huge effect on how well you sleep through the night. So again, everyone is going to be different, but paying attention to that. Looking at your naps. If you're a napper, I personally, a napper sometimes, but I know for me, I can't nap after about four. Are you napping? Are your naps too long? Are your naps too late in the day? So if you are a napper, try to nap in the morning and try to keep them less than 20 minutes. Nicotine, avoid it completely. Nicotine can definitely disrupt your sleep. Create a routine. Create a routine that your body starts to know, okay, this is me winding down at the end of the day. I'm going to turn off my TV and any other screens about an hour before bedtime. I'm going to turn the lights down low. I'm going to get in my favorite pajamas. 
I'm going to have this evening routine with my children where we read a book or sing some songs. So you're really starting to create this routine for your body to go, okay, I'm starting to, to wind down. Yoga Nidra, the research on Yoga Nidra and what it does for your brain and how relaxing it is and how (laughs) your brain thinks that you're sleeping during Yoga Nidra. I try to do that during the daytime at least once a day for my nervous system, just to reset my nervous system. So you could do a Yoga Nidra at the end of the day or if you find yourself awake in the middle of the night. And stress, look at your stress. So we talked about this a little bit with the cortisol spike, that if you're really, really stressed, your largest cortisol spike is going to be during those moments of stress during the day. So really review, where am I stressed? How can I decrease my stress? Where can I ask for help? Where can I receive help? And if you can't, what are the tools and practices that I can start doing and putting in place to regulate my nervous system, understand my different states of my nervous system so that if I am stressed, I know how to work with it. That's a lot of the work I do with clients. So if you have questions around that, want to start to understand your nervous system, really want to start understanding stress levels and the relationship to potential trauma, please reach out to me. I also want to mention that there's something called sleep apnea. This is a completely different thing than than the sleep I'm talking about. If you're not breathing, of course you're going to wake up in the night because your body thinks it's dying. Now, there's a couple different types of sleep apnea. To be fully diagnosed, you need to go have a sleep study. However, one of the forms of sleep apnea is structural. Structural. It's a hard word today. And you can work with specialists, with breathing specialists, physical therapists, myofunctional therapists that can help you retrain how you're breathing. They work with the structures of your esophagus and your throat muscles and your mouth so that you can decrease your chances of sleep apnea. So if you are one of the many Americans out there struggling with sleep apnea, I highly recommend starting to work with someone, if it's a structural thing, physiological thing, to start to learn how to breathe more appropriately, maybe how to breathe differently, working with the different structures so that sleep apnea isn't the reason why you're struggling with sleep. So that was a really quick and dirty review on sleep. I were to be like, okay, here's your takeaways. Get outside first thing in the morning and start to pay attention to all of your routines and stress less. (laughs) So much easier said than done. I wanted to offer a few books that are out there. Why We Sleep by Matt Walker. That is a great book. The rest I have not read, but they've come highly recommended. The second one is The Woman's Guide to Overcoming Insomnia Without Relying on Medication. That's by Shelby Harris. There's another one called Sleep Smarter, 21 Essential Strategies to Sleep and Your Way to a Better Body, Better Health, and Bigger Success. That's by Sean Stevenson and Sarah Gottfried. 
I haven't read that either, but I do know of Sarah Gottfried. I have read her other books and I, I like her work. I will also include a link to the NIH, which is where I got my information regarding the stages of sleep. I just like to give credit where credit's due. Some of my information also came from the Huberman podcast. I think that's a great podcast if you're nerdy like me and like to understand the neuroscience and the mechanisms of the brain. I personally love that stuff. So if if you're like me and nerdy and, and like that information, you could listen to his podcasts. All right. I feel like that was a really fast breakdown of sleep and why our sleep is so important and some different techniques and tools that you can use to hopefully have more restful sleep. And not only restful sleep, but be more awake in the day. So really keeping in mind that what we're doing in the daytime is just as important, if not more important, than what's happening at night. I really appreciate you being here. I'm excited to talk about gut health for our last episode of Nervous System November. Again, if you have any questions, let me know. I am not a sleep expert. This is just what I know from doing my own research and working through my own sleep and my love for the nervous system. But if you do have questions, let me know. If I can answer them, I'll point you in the direction of hopefully someone who can. And really looking forward to next week's episode as we talk about gut health for the final episode of Nervous System November. Thanks so much for joining me today, and I will see you next week. 